Section 4 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 4 Death Grips, Part 3. Arnold Ralden and his puerile threats of vague retribution passed quickly from my thoughts or lingered but as a hazy memory of a humorous interview. I saw nothing more of him except perhaps the passing glimpses that in a place like Shanghai are inevitable, for seven months. Then we were once more thrown together at a social gathering at the house of a mutual friend in Range Road. There was a fairly large assembly composed chiefly of young people, and I was anxious to avoid cause for a display of ill-humor on his part. I was agreeably astonished, therefore, to find that, in place of the morose taciturnity I expected, Rodden greeted me affably, calmly ignoring the fact that we had parted last, on his side at least, in anger. And my relief at the prospect of the evening's harmony remaining undisturbed, I felt almost inclined to venture on a gentle jibe on the nature of the dreadful revenge he had wreaked upon us. Fortunately, I restrained the impulse. For a wonder, I had come alone. Ethel had been indisposed and refused to hear of my remaining to keep her company. It was more to please her, for she was reproaching herself, that I came at all. There was the usual questionable playing and the usual unquestionably bad singing, which no one wanted to hear and all were reluctant to do, but which, for some occult reason, everyone joined in soliciting each of the others to perform. Then we settled down to idle chatter, but the younger members of the party soon began to grow restless with the exuberance of youth. So games were proposed as an outlet for redundant spirits. But here age again was against them, most were at that transitional period of existence when parlor games are looked upon as kiddish, and more staid forms of amusement have not yet begun to attract. At last, in a moment of happy inspiration, someone proposed that we should try the good old experiment of making the table revolve by the force of animal magnetism. The skeptical were lured forward by the assurance that they, the narrators, had seen it done dozens of times. "'Simplest thing in the world,' explained one young lady enthusiastically. "'You only have to join hands on the table and think hard.' "'Oh, I say,' exclaimed the young man opposite. "'No, Mr. Moore, I did not say join hands under the table,' flashed the girl in answer to his ecstatic look. "'I said, on the table.' The young man's face fell, and he appeared to be losing in the discussion. "'I don't think it is very good to think hard,' announced a callow youth. Ruins one's digestion. You certainly ought to enjoy good health, Mr. Weir, retorted the same damsel with a merry glance at his pasty face. She was the life of the party, that girl, and presently, by sheer dint of coaxing and overruling all objections, she had us gathered round a fair-sized table, like so many sheep garnered into the fold. To heighten the effect and aid the required concentration of thought, the lights were turned low, and we all sat with our hands on the circumference of the table, little fingers and thumbs in contact, and thought very hard of ghosts and graveyards, or surreptitiously squeezed the finger of the girl next to us, to a running accompaniment of little squeals and half-suppressed giggles. Then, as the table still remained solid and immobile, one of us elder ones suddenly lifted his hands, thus destroying the circuit, and pronounced the effort a failure. While the supporters of the scheme were reproaching us with not having thought hard enough, or with giggling just as the table began to move, Arnold Rawdon, who I noticed had taken his place at the table with a quiet smile that was half a sneer, asked, "'Has anybody ever seen hypnotism?' "'Yes,' said a youngster wearily. 
saw it at home. Professor Kennedy did lots of funny things, put the fluence on a man and made him drink kerosene for fizz. Why, can you hypnotize? asked the lady with breathless interest. I don't believe I have quite lost the power, answered Rawdon. There was a little O of pleasurable surprise from more than one of the more impressionable ones while he continued. I don't know if anyone will consent to be put off. I was leaning my back against the mantelpiece, listening to this nonsense with a half-disdainful smile, and now a sudden idea seized me. I would make Mr. Arnold Rawdon look small in the eyes of the company by a failure. He might succeed in mesmerizing some young girl of nervous temperament and put her to sleep, but hypnotism, pooh, had I not experience of this sort of thing before? Obsession? Idiotic word. At least there should be no danger of collusion. I myself would volunteer to be the subject. I had it all mapped out so neatly. I would pretend to go off with prompt obedience, and then, when he turned to assure the company that I was under the influence, I would open one eye and laugh at him. It never for a moment struck me as possible for a well-balanced mind to be put off unwillingly. So I said with a short laugh, I don't mind being the lamb of sacrifice if Mr. Rawdon cares to try his hand at occult influences. I have since thought that he accepted my offer with distinct eagerness. At any rate, he came hurriedly towards me, as though he feared I might change my mind. I resented the imputation. Where shall I sit? I asked listlessly. Stand where you please. That will do quite well, he replied, standing before me. The rest of the company eagerly drew their chairs round us in a semicircle, and rustled themselves down into attitudes of comfort and rapt attention. And now occurred a curious phenomenon. I was standing with folded arms still leaning against the mantelpiece, and gazing with feigned intentness into the eyes of Arnold Rawdon, determined not to let my imagination wander and so give it the chance of playing any tricks upon me. For I think I have said before that I believed in the possibility of the mesmeric sleep, where the subject submitted himself unrestrained to the test. Rawdon was facing me with a clear intensity of gaze that I did not believe could have crept into the weak blue eyes. Suddenly, with a quick imperious gesture, he threw both arms high above my head and allowed them slowly to drop again to the level of my waist, lightly touching my face with the finger ends as they passed. He repeated this three times, or possibly four times, still looking at me with the same intense fixity of gaze, when I do not know exactly what happened, but the sensuous face with its receding chin seemed suddenly to blur and fade away, and in place of the eyes into which I had been staring I saw two puffs of blue-gray vapor shoot out, as if from a distance towards me. The only thing to which I can liken it is the discharge of a gun when one is watching the firing of a naval salute. It was just two such puffs of smoke, but of a darker hue, that I saw leap out toward me, small and concentrated at first, but diffusing themselves as they approached. And I caught myself listening involuntarily for the reports, but only one came. One loud, long, prolonged crash amid the reverberations of which the jets of vapor appeared to run together and unite as they swept toward me. I had an eerie sensation that I was not myself, that the real me had wriggled out and was standing without my body looking hopelessly on. Then I remember I unfolded my arms and let them drop rigidly to my side. This was the last voluntary movement I remember making. The next instant, 
the fog bank had swept down upon me and enveloped me, and I was in utter darkness. A moment thus, then the gray mists began to recede again and heap themselves in a dense impenetrable wall behind me. And on the other side of that partition I thought was the real spiritual me, cut off from all communication with my bodily self. An indescribable sense of double consciousness possessed me. There was my old familiar self standing aside, helpless and inert, and another me that was surging through every fiber of my being, grasping the control of the machine. As the vapors ran back to nothingness, the room, to my astonished gaze, became quite clear. I could see the company of ladies and gentlemen sitting erect in their chairs, or leaning forward with expressions of awe writ large on their faces. The only one I could not see was Rawdon. End of section four.